Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm talking to Timothy Hutton, who at just 20 years old, won the Oscar for his performance in Ordinary People, making him the youngest recipient to ever win a Supporting Actor Oscar, a record he has held for almost four decades. We'll be discussing that film and so much more, including The Haunting of Hill House, the show that reimagined Shirley Jackson's terrifying gothic horror novel with Hutton playing the patriarch Hugh Crane. It's all here. Why he passed on Risky Business, his reflections on working with Robert Redford, and what it means for Stephen King to praise The Haunting of Hill House. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you today. It's like you play these characters, and they're always kind of morally, you know, walking some kind of tightrope, and you never know whether you're going to get there or not. I don't know whether that's a conscious choice or it's just kind of where what you gravitate to, but you've never played a kind of archetype male character. What do you have to say to that? Well, that's, it's really interesting to hear you put it like that. I mean, it's, I guess when you're going about work and you're trying to figure out what it is you want to do and you're trying to respond to a script that's, you know, been sent your way, um, you never really think about what your template is or what, what it is you're looking for. At least, I mean, maybe I should, but I never really have. It's more kind of whatever um, kind of grabs me. And I guess the thing that has over the years, are, as you just kind of described, uh, are people um, who, you know, are searching for something, trying to fix something, um, need to rectify something, need to... Um, become um, unbroken and um, internal repair work as well as repair work toward others that perhaps damage that, that, that was done, caused by him. Maybe you find out it wasn't. It was... So these kinds of characters or a uh, bad crisis, um, a, a moment uh, in time where certainly in Haunting of Hill House, that that's the case when he kind of abandons his family based on this central event. But those, yes, those characters have always been um, really interesting because as far as story goes, if you look at a character as story just by him or herself, um, that I think is the most interesting part of acting is to look at the character's journey as a story within a story. And because you can secretly add other ingredients that only you know about and hopefully they'll resonate and, and hopefully um, by resonating somehow the character will be compelling within the larger story. And so Haunting of Hill House, I actually want a little bit of my sanity back because <laughs> I was I don't do scary movies at all. Like Silence of the Lambs for me scarred me for life. <laughs> and that's as scary as I can get. But I wanted to, obviously I knew I was seeing you and I wanted to um and watching it, I was like terrified 
it's so eerie and it's so well written and well shot. You get vested. I was so you're vested in these characters because they're not 2D. They're really three dimensional and the acting was so good. You're just like lured in. When you read that, did you immediately, was it immediately something you wanted to do? Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought this is a great family drama mm-hmm. with some horrific stuff as a as a backdrop. You know, ghosts and paranormal, supernatural, insane things. The house itself as a character that has such a insane impact on, mm-hmm. on, on each of the family members. So that's what I, when I read it, yeah, I thought this is first and foremost a really great kind of study of a fractured family um, even before they move into the house. And then the house kind of pulls out all this other stuff. And it's uh, it's probably recommended not to watch the show alone. Oh, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> so you and Henry Thomas both play Hugh Crane. You, of course, are the older version, Henry the younger version. Tell me about how that came about. Did you rehearse together? Just talk me through that. Yeah, well, it it was uh, Mike Flanagan who you know directed it and and uh, was the main writer on the whole thing. He had this idea that that part uh, could be played by two different actors, and and that's how it you know it started. And he had worked with Henry Thomas before, so he was cast first. And then Mike, uh, I guess, thought that Henry and I uh, would be an interesting pairing playing this one character. So. That's how it came to be. And I, you know, I read it instantly, you know, sent word back that this is something uh, very interesting and that I was, that I'd like to to join it. So when I arrived, Mike, Henry and I sat down and we talked for hours about the possibilities of this character and areas that we could create continuity and areas. I was interested in the continuity of it, but I was also interested in having very specific traits um, to kind of continue visually through behavior and other things. And in one particular case, wardrobe, a very odd, uh, tattered red corduroy jacket that Henry wears once and I wear again, and that's about it. And then things like makeup considerations. He thought we both should have blue eyes, so unfortunately for Henry, he had to wear contacts. But the thing I was interested in to get back to that was the specific way that he was with each of those kids I thought was really, really interesting because he really uh, kind of focused in on them. And he was a great dad. He cared for them. They were, I mean, freaking out, waking up in the middle of the night, terrified. And I thought, after all that happens, what if this guy lost some of those very things you expect to see in him? And ease with his kids, ease in terms of how he talks to them. So that's something we talked about and that slowly he would become more and more confident in his uh, need to um, answer their questions and kind of be there for them again, because he truly does abandon them. Yeah, it's like the trauma of time. All right, I want to ask you about that one particularly challenging scene in the house. It feels like it's just one long take. Like the camera never cuts. Like you just It doesn't. How was that to film? We all were aware of that episode before we even began the first episode um, because Mike Flanagan wanted to pull off this thing where he would do, I think, you know, one take is 21 minutes and then the next one is 19 minutes. And without a cut, just um, this guy, wonderful camera operator and a steady cam, very well uh, rehearsed, mapped out. Before we started filming that episode, there was a break. And 
we just worked on it, rehearsed it. We rehearsed it around a table in terms of speaking the words and understanding, you know, sort of the emotional beats that we had to be in. And then we moved to the space, the funeral home, and we started mapping it out on the floor. And then the technicians were brought in because all of the lighting cues and all of the effects that happen are actually ha happening. They're all real time. Mm -hmm. There's a, a chandelier that falls, mm -hmm. uh, for example. And that, that was something that had to be cued precisely after a movement um, and it's a transition into the past. So all of this was rehearsed over a two-week period. And I remember we got to a place of feeling so comfortable with it. We were supposed to film the first long shot on a Friday. And we felt so good by Tuesday night, we decided to, to do it the next day on Wednesday. And then we just kept going. And it became like, you know, it... it uh, it was like doing a play. It was like doing a live broadcast, uh, you know, on television or something. It was because you you had to really get it right. Everything had to work together. Um, and, of course, we were all nervous that we would be the ones that would, you know, forget a line or be in the wrong place or forget to move to that spot. Uh, and we felt an added pressure that this poor guy had this very heavy steady cam, this camera, attached to his body and he was moving and, and in a very precise way. So we thought if we mess up, this guy is going to, you know, get so frustrated. So he almost became kind of the goal. Like we got to make sure this guy's okay. <laughs> like greyhounds when they're following that's the bunny. Right. That's, like, that's great. Get, exactly. Get yeah. it right. Well, also I can imagine the challenging working with children too, actors. That's, you know, they're having to do that on Q2. That's, that's got to have its own, um, problems getting that right. Yeah, and they were rehearsed. I mean, we would do full dress rehearsals and it was all scheduled, you know, brilliantly. Um, and those kids were incredible. I mean, throughout the whole, every episode, those kids are just amazing. Yeah. And then I thought the casting was particularly amazing with, you know, what Mike Flanagan did in terms of the young cranes mm -hmm. and then the older crane as, as young adults. Did you guys have any idea that it would hit the social zeitgeist like it did? I mean, you got a shout out from Stephen King, and he doesn't like anybody or anything, <laughs> and he's tweeting about it. I mean, I that's like the highest compliment. Yeah, that was amazing. You know, especially for someone who had done two Stephen King movies yeah. in the past and heard crickets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To suddenly, it's like, oh, he is watching, uh, you know, not that he, he had anything to do with the writing of it. He feels, Stephen King, apparently very attached to it. So he thinks... The Shirley Jackson book is the greatest horror book ever. I mean, he talks about it a lot. So, but yeah, to see him uh, respond that way. No, we, I think we all had a sense that, you know, Mike Flanagan has a very um, uh, a definite following of people in that genre. So we knew that there would be people, you know, turning up for it. And of course, you know, being on Netflix, we knew that it would have, um, you know, a, a great release and that it would have incredible promotion and all that sort of thing because, you know, the the company does does very well with that. So we knew that part of it would be covered. There would be awareness of the project. But then, you know, the bigger issue is, do they like it? Is it something that, uh, you know, people are talking about? And I don't think anyone had an idea that it would be kind of, you know, watched as much as it was and discussed as much as it was. So you've been acting for four decades. Boy. Literally. I mean, you started young. So did you have at that 
time this thought that you were going to this is what you were doing for life? Did you have an you know expectation that you would be working like how you are right now, like constantly? And I know I want to talk about the Gloria Steinem movie you have coming up and you're in another television show that just got picked up. You know, what what was going through your head through the course of that, especially when you were younger? I wasn't a kid who who uh, thought at an early age that I wanted to be an actor. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I, I really liked, uh, I was on sports teams, baseball, basketball. Um, I liked music a lot. You know, I was kind of a bad drummer. Um, and I was interested in um, maybe being an architect because I had an interest in, in you know, that. In high school, there was a play at Berkeley High in Northern California. There was a thing called the Performing Arts Department within the school, state-funded, because it was a public school, uh, state-funded um, performing arts, including music, of course, and, and theater. And it was a kind of a part of the school. You had to audition to get in. Um, so my sister had gone through the, the PAD, Performing Arts Department, and uh, she... She seemed to be having a great time in her afternoon. And, you know, and I, I was on the basketball team, and I knew that I had a certain amount of time, you know, in the afternoon, early afternoon, and she kind of recommended that I do, and I did and got in and and started, uh, you know, doing these kind of acting classes. And then suddenly there was a mandatory um, audition for Euripides, uh, the Bacchae. And I thought, well, I mean, you have to, you have to audition. So I did, and... And they posted who was going to be playing what part. And then I, I didn't even go look. Someone came. I think it might have been, might have even been my older sister, Heidi, who said, uh, you got the part of Dionysus. So you better, you know, <laughs> you better get it together and start learning this. It's uh, a lot of lines. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I did a very good job, but I had a great time with the process. Uh, kind of amazing. And then that led to someone coming to see it. Um, a casting director who asked if I, I'd be interested in auditioning for a television movie that was going to be filming in Fresno that Carol Burnett and Ed Beatty were doing called Friendly Fire. Um, I auditioned for it, and I got the role of uh, one of their sons, and that was amazing. Um, so now I was like 18. You know, I, I just was kind of feeling like I have no idea really what what's going on here or if this is something that I'm interested in doing I mean but it just I did friendly fire and then friendly I did a couple of other TV movies uh, that year I was still living in Northern California and my mom lent me her 1966 beat up Volkswagen bug uh, to drive down for the auditions and I remember the first audition of ordinary people they said to me um so uh, where are you living? And it was at Warner Brothers Studios in Hollywood. And I said, um, you know, just over there on the uh, Hollywood Street there on the thing. <laughs> because I thought it would really work against me if I said I'm up in Berkeley. Right. That that would, they would say, oh, we're not going to, you know, kids yeah. not even in town. So I would finish, I remember finishing the first audition and then driving back north. Of course, you know, there were seven no... Seven hours. Seven hours. No cell phones anything like that. I pull in to my mom's house and she said, uh, look, I, 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 I hate to break it to you, but they've been calling. They need to see you tomorrow. So wow. I got in the car and drove back down to LA and for the second audition. And this kind of just kept 
happening. <laughs> I was going back and forth. Ordinary People is one of my favorite films. It's just brilliant. I feel like it really stands the test of time. Is there something that I don't know uh, that you can tell me, either a good Redford story or a Mary Tyler Moore story, or something that happened during filming that might enlighten fans? You know, there are a couple of things that I remember so so clearly. Uh, you know, one of them was that that I don't think many people know about is that the parents were cast uh, last. Elizabeth McGovern was cast first because Redford had to make a commitment to her um, so that she could go to Juilliard and make a special case for her being them being okay with her doing the movie because it's something they didn't do. Once you were, once you started in Juilliard, that was it. You couldn't have any professional engagements outside. You could, but you would have to leave the school. Mm. So they worked out a compromise, but Redford had to commit to her. So she was cast first, and it's so great that that happened. Mm. And then they wanted to find the Conrad, so they did that, and I was cast. And then they were they were looking for the mom. And I remember after I was cast, uh, Redford. Um, had me, you know, come down to Paramount, uh, and the auditions were at Warner Brothers, just so it doesn't seem confusing. And then the actual film was made by Paramount. So once everything got rolling, all all activities were held at Paramount. Anyway, I he asked me to come down to Paramount because there was a woman that he was considering um, for the role of my mother, and he wanted to do a screen test, and he wanted me to be there since I was going to be playing the part. Uh, he wanted me to be there to, you know, read and and play the scene while this person uh, was screen testing, and it was Anne Margaret, and Anne Margaret, yeah, she was amazing. I mean, she was incredible. Anne Margaret, that, yeah. wow. Anne Margaret, wow, right. Well, he he definitely turned that character. You know, he wanted it to be a surprise. Clearly, absolutely, but like. Wow, what was Anne Margaret like? Well, she was incredible. I How mean, she, exciting for you, by the way, eighteen and Anne. oh my gosh! I mean, yeah, I you know, I, I bye walked bye in Bertie. there to the to the stage and and you know they had built a like a library that was meant to be in the home of this family and there was a ladder and uh, there was a scene where she you know she's she's mad at Conrad because he lied about quitting the swimming team. Anyway, it's it's one of the scenes that's in the film. Mm-hmm. And there's Anne Margaret, and I meet her briefly, um, and then Redford starts talking to us, and he says, Anne, how about you're over there, and Tim, you're, you're over there, you come in, and then Anne, you notice that he's there, and you, and we started doing it, we started uh, doing the scene, and Redford, we, we would get a certain, um, you know, way into it, and Redford would say, okay, let, let's, why don't we just uh, stop for a second, um, Anne, um, Maybe, you know, I think it, it needs to, I mean, she was, do, she was great. She was so interesting in what she was doing. But what was happening was is that no matter how she played it, it was, it was slightly seductive. <laughs> it, it just was, yeah. it, it was, there was a kind of warmth and a kind of focus and a kind of attention, a kind of, she wasn't trying to be that way, but somehow her and the material and it just was, so that's how it started. And then he talked to her and um, talked to both of us and changed the blocking a little bit. And and then she she did it when we filmed it. It was an incredible. I mean, she, she was amazing. And I thought, I left thinking, wow, Ann Margaret is going to be playing my mom. This is incredible. And then a couple of days later, Redford called and said, uh, 
you ever watch uh, Mary Tyler Moore show? And I went, yeah, I mean, you know, um, yeah, I used to watch that. Uh, my mom loved that show, you know. And he said, all right, well, that's your mom. One of my favorite things that I ever did at, at Vanity Fair where I spent you know, 25 years uh, working was obviously the Hollywood issues. I would do those every year and was getting the reunion shot for ordinary people. Uh, Anybody who knows me knows that I absolutely love Robert Redford. I love the work he did. I grew up in Colorado, the work he did with the environment and obviously Sundance and just him on screen and behind screen. He's just kind of one of my favorite, um, a role model, let's say, to just keep keep going, keep doing. And I love that now he's 80 and he's still doing. Mm, So um, very impressed by him. I am curious, how was that to see everybody 30 years later? And obviously you won the Oscar. I think you're still the youngest actor, supporting actor to ever win an Oscar. Redford, you know, that movie beat, I think it was Scorsese and Raging Bull, which lives on in the internet. (laughs) Still, (laughs) that argument. Yeah. But it was a pretty seminal film and a seminal moment for both you and him. But how was that reconnection? Do you remember anything about that day? Yeah, I remember that day very clearly. I mean, it was one of the great days having to do with that sort of thing, you know, work-related, a story being done about a project. It was the most amazing day for everyone, to, And I think it was for everybody. You know, even Redford showed that he was moved by the assembly of all of us and and to be there um and donald and mary and uh judd and elizabeth it was you know it was an incredible day and i remember the storm uh, i remember driving out to that house mm-hmm. uh that we we shot the picture and we all had little moments of catching up well other thing i want to talk about is tom cruise and sean penn so all three of you guys were coming up around the same time. You know, you had Taps, right? You and Sean did Falcon and the Snowman. And you famously, I think this is pretty documented, and you've talked about it, um, didn't do risky business. Do you think that Tom Cruise would be Tom Cruise if you had done that part? Yes, I do. Because Why Tom, is that? Well, because Tom is just such an incredible, um, you know, actor and presence and has such a powerful um, approach to to roles. And, you know, he has he's, he's done it time and time again. I mean, you know, it's quite brilliant the way in which he has um, approached the different movies that he's done that I mean, you could just go on and on and make a huge list. Yeah, I mean, if I had done Risky Business, which I had the opportunity to do, and he didn't, well, he he was on everybody's radar. And, I mean, he had a, and has a kind of presence and charisma and dedication and focus and intensity that we all saw when we were making taps. I mean, we used to mm-hmm. laugh about it because it was just so insane. Mm-hmm. He was so unbelievably into it, you know. And way better for that role in Risky Business. Um, I would have mucked it up. I would have just, I would have made the character way too complicated and way too, <laughs> not. and I'm not saying that any kind of like, I don't mean to say more interesting. I mean, I think I would have been, it, it, I would have, my approach would, at that time in my life would have been not appropriate, not not as interesting and right for the film. He really got that role. 
um, perfectly, and he understood it. And uh, you know, and at the time, yeah, Sue Mengers thought I was insane. David Geffen, who produced the movie, uh, was calling me saying, "What are you not? What? How can you? You, you can't." go off and do a Sidney Lamette movie about the Rosenbergs <laughs> the old doctoral wrote. What do you, really? That's what you're juggling here? This versus mm-hmm. that? No. And, you know. You were 19 at the 20? I was 21 20, at that 21. time. 21, 22. I was really, really, uh, you know, attracted to this other script called Daniel that mm-hmm. Lumet was directing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't your destiny. I would love for you guys to do a project together. Just going to say again, like, I mean, obviously you've worked together in the past, but I'd love to see something come up again. But uh, is there anybody you would like to collaborate with again or someone or a director you'd like to work with that that you that you haven't? Certainly, Sean. Uh, we've known each other for so long and, and did those couple of movies together. It would be really great now after all these years to 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 try to find something. And, and uh, there have been a couple of uh, projects over the years where we almost did and just things didn't work out, but uh, I mean, there's so there's so many people that uh, that I've worked with that that it would be great to um, do something uh, with again. I mean, you know, have you have these kind of experiences, these these, and 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 they end up being such an incredible period of time, and you get very close, and you you the work is very focused, and when it goes well, you want to experience that again. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that you do. I mean, uh, th- there are certain collaborators that continuously find things work together, but mostly you don't. You move on to new projects and new people, and yeah, I mean, that's a, there's a whole group. It would be great to do something with Elizabeth McGovern, she just kind of popped into my mind um, in terms of, you know, doing something mm-hmm. again. But there there are many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. What what keeps your enthusiasm for it? I mean, it is such a business that ebbs and flows. And I mean, other than it being a job, you know, how do you keep vested? Because it is so emotional and you have to deal with so many people and it's different every time. It's not like going to an office, you know, where you have certain relationships that you build up over the years and you have certain expectations. Here it's different. And I'm so curious about how that transforms as you age. All the things you just mentioned are kind of the positive aspects of the job. You know, it's not the same place. It's not the same people. You get to change it up. The, you know, the downside is that you don't, sometimes you have these big gaps. Um, you don't know what your next project is going to be. And um, you start to wonder, you know, uh, uh, what it'll be. And boy, it's been a few months and I'd really like to be working. Um, you know, and of course, then there's the, the the part that happens for everybody where you go into something thinking the best, and the experience is you know isn't so great, and what turns out is is something very different than what you thought mm-hmm. it would be. But you know, I've just been very lucky, very fortunate, because it, th- th- there have been enough interesting, good experiences with amazing people that I. You know, even when I haven't felt great about how things were going um, or had done a couple of things, you know, a couple of years in a row that nobody seemed to be interested in or no one went mm-hmm. to go see or it didn't turn out very whatever, you know, yeah, I just always felt that it would be all right. You know, something will come around and I'll get involved in something. I certainly felt that way when um, when I read American Crime. And, you know, that was that that was something that I... I pursued because I, you know, I asked an agent who reads a lot of scripts. I said, well, what are the best 
pilot scripts you've read this year. And he mentioned a bunch. I said, send me the five that you think are, you know, and, and particularly the one you just mentioned and that one and the one about that and the John Ridley one. And so I read American Crime and, you know, three pages in, I just thought this is something right. very special. So I called the agent back and I said, um, can you get in touch with uh, John Ridley and just just leave word that, you know, I, I'd like to meet him um, as soon as possible. I'll, I don't know if he's in, in L.A. or what, but, I, you know, I'm in New York and I will fly out tomorrow, the next day. Just can you ask him that I would like to have just 10 minutes of his time to just just to tell him what what I think of the script? Um, that's it. Um, I, I just really would like to. He said, all right, well, look, they're not even casting now, so I don't think that's going to be possible. I said, please, just however you can do it, call his age, whatever, whatever you have to do. So uh, by the end of that day, the agent called back and said, um, it was a Monday. John Ridley will meet you uh, in L.A. at 12 noon on Wednesday. So flew out. And he was amazing, and we talked, and he said to me that they weren't casting, mm -hmm. but that he really appreciated what I had to say about the script. Anyway, some weeks went by, and he stayed in touch with me, and one day I got the call, and he said, I'd really like you to play uh, mm -hmm. Russ. And so those kinds of things, you, I feel like through it all, there have been times where I've really um, been moved by material or the chance to work with mm -hmm. somebody. Um, and you know, just generally speaking, have always felt like, you know, it's quite an amazing job and um, to appreciate the time off and not mm -hmm. get worried and not get concerned and just keep myself in a good frame of mind um, for the next thing that was going to happen, mm -hmm. even if I didn't know what it was going to mm -hmm. be. And next up for you is Gloria Steinem's father, right? Isn't that, yeah. is that who you are? That's great. It's, it's Alicia Vikander. Is that who plays her young? And then it's Julianne Moore. That's right. Older, right. And and I should mention Lulu Wilson uh, as well. And Julie Taymor, the amazing Julie mm -hmm. Taymor, uh, directed it. And uh, it, it just, it was great. We, we finished very recently, um, Savannah, Georgia. And that was just uh, an, an incredible, incredible experience. That's it's great. Well, um, I uh, really enjoy talking to you. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. The Haunting of Hill House is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Present Company is produced by Netflix and Gimlet Creative. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.